Well, we don't, in our family, we don't go to a ton of movies in the theater. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. One is we have four small children, and um, one time we took them to see a movie, uh, and it ended in tears, and we had to walk out on it, and uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was that movie, Inside Out, which is an animated movie about emotions, and our kids' emotions overwhelmed them watching the emotions on screen. And so we had to walk out of the movie theater because there was crying and tears. And it was a great, it's a great family memory um, <laughs> of that, um, you know. And parents handled that in different ways. Um, mom was sympathetic toward the kids. Dad was frustrated because he'd paid for these movie tickets. And now we weren't getting to watch. So all of our emotions were on display. Um, <laughs> So uh, I think one of the last movies we went to see, uh, I took several of the kids to see an animated movie, Ferdinand, uh, about a bull who is very kind and doesn't want to fight the matador. Uh, anyway, great little movie. Um, but if you've been to a movie recently in the theater, the start time that they give you, uh, just a word to the wise, is not the actual start time of the movie. Um, it may say that it starts at 3.20, but the, your feature film will not start until like 4.20. <laughs> and the reason for that is because they give you previews of movies, multiple previews, before the feature film starts. And the previews are each around two minutes long, maybe two and a half minutes long. And you know what a preview is. It gives you a little snippet of an upcoming movie that will be in that theater soon. And obviously the goal is they match the previews with movies that uh, they think you'll want to see both of them. And so like movies get like previews. And so the goal is they want to get you back in the theater to spend more money and to watch a new movie when it comes out. Um, some people get frustrated with the previews. I actually like them. Um, I've been known to watch movie previews, just the previews on YouTube, because I think they're fascinating. Uh, and they're like, they're like appetizers. It's a small taste of what is to come, and it sort of whets your appetite for the future feature film. Today, in our study of Mark, I want you to think in terms of a preview, a movie preview or an appetizer. So open up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be studying the transfiguration. Now, this is one of those events in the life of Christ that is certainly unique. It's recorded in three Gospels, obviously in the Gospel of Mark. And it's hard sometimes to tell what should we learn from this. I mean, this is such a out-of-the-ordinary event that we read it and we think, okay, what are we supposed to learn from this? And I want you to think of this event in terms of a preview or an appetizer of what is to come for Jesus and for his disciples. So if you back up before Mark 9, you get to Mark chapter 8, and at the end of that chapter, verses 27 all the way to verse 38, a couple last week and then a few weeks before that, we're studying that. And what we saw was that Jesus predicted that the means to his exaltation, to his enthronement as king of the universe, the means to that end was not what anyone expected. The means to that exaltation was going to be his suffering, his rejection, and his death. And that was the necessary path that he had to walk to be enthroned and exalted as king. And we also saw that that pattern of suffering leading to exaltation 
was going to be necessary for his disciples as well. And both of those truths about him and his disciples were quite unnerving for the disciples and really should be unnerving for us as well as those who want to follow Christ and be like him. The disciples were told that to be his follower, they had to deny self, take up their cross, and follow him. And so as he begins to teach that and explain that, the disciples with Peter at the lead are are confused, they're unsettled, they're unsure. There's no parking space for that car in their thinking. They don't understand what a suffering king would look like. That's a contradiction in terms of suffering Messiah. The, the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, as they understood it, was supposed to be one who came in, who brought Israel back to glory, who kicked out the foreign invaders, the Roman uh, infidels in many ways, and fulfilled all of these kingly promises that were given in the Old Testament. And that's what they thought of as Messiah. And so when Jesus starts talking about suffering and death and rejection at the hands of religious leaders, they're not, they're not really sure about this. This is confusing teaching. He's supposed to reign in splendor and in glory, but he's talking about suffering and death for himself and for his followers. And so they're confused by this. And then you get to chapter 9 and verse 1, and here's what we read, following on the heels of what we just saw in chapter 8. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what's he talking about there? There's a lot of different discussion of what this could be, but what it basically boils down to is Jesus is saying that some of you will see a preview of what the king reigning in his kingdom will look like. You're going to get an appetizer. You're going to get a foretaste of the glory that is to come. Some of you are going to get a taste of this reality here soon before you die. And so what we have in this verse and then in this section, dealing with the transfiguration, we have divine assurance that Jesus is what Peter proclaimed him to be. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And at the same time, he's also the suffering servant. Both of those things are true. And the transfiguration is an affirmation. It's a a foretaste of the glory that will be for Jesus through his work, through what his work accomplishes. So in this passage, think of it like God the Father pulls back the curtain for just a moment so that the disciples see the glory of the heavenly Christ, the majesty and the splendor of the Son of God, that majesty and splendor that has been veiled for a short time in his human form. And they get to see it for a moment, and then they go on toward the road to the cross. And we get to to peek in on this as well and learn something from it. Now, when you think about movie previews, if you ever go and look for movie previews on YouTube, especially movie previews for Star Wars, I will say, if you look for those, you'll see on the side there are all these people who have taken the previews and they have have analyzed them down to the, the details of what happens in the previews. And they'll make all these comments on something that's in the background of this scene and what they saw in this scene and how this fits with what was in a previous movie. And what they're doing is they're trying to figure out, before the movie comes out, new information or the plot line of the movie. And they're trying to diagnose every detail of the preview to try to figure out what's going to happen before they actually see it in the movie. 
Now, I think that's what you and I are supposed to do with the transfiguration. I think we're supposed to look at all the details as much as we can. We're to study this and we're to uncover as much as we can about who Jesus Christ is and learn all we can about him. This is a foretaste of the glory of Christ, and we're to to read and study this story with an eye to what God is telling us about Jesus. And the goal is obviously that we can know our Savior better. I mean, we're getting the curtain pulled back, so let's take advantage of the curtain being pulled back, and let's look intently at this story, and let's know all we can about our Christ and about our Savior. So today, we're going to study five revelations not the book of Revelation, five revelations. These are ways of revealing, of showcasing who Jesus is. Five revelations that give a foretaste of the future glory of Jesus. And these revelations will shape our discipleship. Because remember, who Christ is in his person connects to how we walk as disciples. You cannot separate those two. And so these realities will shape our lives as disciples. So five revelations that give a foretaste of the future glory of Jesus and shape our discipleship. Now, each of these five, you can just put the word Jesus is in front of them. I didn't want to write it on the screen, but you can put those two words, all right? These are descriptions, revelations of him and his future glory. So first of all, Jesus is the glorious son of man. Now, one of the reasons I think verse 1 that we read earlier is talking about the transfiguration is because of the way verse 2 connects to verse 1. I mean, Mark is obviously making that connection. Jesus says this in verse 1, some of you are going to see a foretaste of the kingdom coming in power. And then in verse 2, he makes that connection. Look at verse 2. And... After six days. So there's a specific time period that has passed. And this is the only time in Mark that 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 specific of a time period is given. So Mark obviously wants us to think of the transfiguration in terms of what Jesus has just promised in verse 1. And look what he says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Those are the sum of verse 1. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He takes three disciples with him. They go up on a high mountain, which we'll talk about why they go up on a high mountain in a few minutes here. But the end of verse 2 tells us very succinctly what happens. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. Leave it to Mark, leave it to the Bible to give us a very summary statement of what happens here in this moment. He was transfigured before them. Now that word transfigured means to change forms. I mean, that's, that's what it means. Um, it's the word metamorphosis is kind of the basis for it. Now, don't think in terms of a caterpillar. It's not exactly the same idea, but it, it means to change forms here. Now, I do want you to think of this word in, tor- in terms of Philippians chapter 2, because the same root word is used in Philippians 2. Let me put this up on the screen for you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form... That's the word. Though he was in the form of God, so he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking, adding the form. There's that same word of a servant, of a human being, being born in the likeness of men. So you see the two different forms there that come together in the incarnation. Both of those are there. 
the heavenly form or splendor, the glory of God on display for all to see, was veiled for a short time when Jesus added the human form to him there. And so what the transfiguration means, this change of forms here, is that the heavenly form got put on display for a short period of time. The disciples got to see who Jesus was in his heavenly glory. He explains further in verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's kind of a funny description, but the emphasis here is on his appearance. It's, it's not just his clothes. It's his appearance. It's Jesus. His form changes. He's white, intensely white, and his clothing. It's the same thing. And Mark makes it very clear in this verse. This is not the result of some human endeavor or some human trick. I mean, he didn't bleach his clothes really, really well and make them shine very, very brightly. That is obviously not what has happened. This is not some magic trick that has gone on here. So what is it? How does this happen? Well, in Scripture, this sort of white radiance, this glowing uh, picture that comes from a human being is really only displayed by heavenly beings. I mean, in Daniel chapter 7, you actually see God the Father, the Ancient of Days, who is clothed in white like this. And around the throne, you see heavenly beings in white. And so what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, Jesus is not simply another man. He's not simply a prophet. Remember back in chapter 8, the disciples said that some people had said that Jesus was a prophet. And that was high praise for him. But this tells us he is not simply a prophet. He's not simply another man like the disciples were. He's of heavenly origin. It tells us that he is the pre-existent, heavenly son of man. He is unique. Remember that title, son of man, means he's unique. He's sent by the Father into the world to accomplish the work of the Father. And here the disciples get a preview of that glory. The glory that he had before the incarnation and the glory that he will return to after his resurrection. They get that preview. So that's the first thing we learn about Jesus, the first revelation of him. Let's go on to the second, and then we'll get to the third in a little while. comes up as well. The second one is the one who brings the day of the Lord. He's the one who brings the day of the Lord. So verses 2 and 3 describe this transfiguration. He's a heavenly of heavenly origin. And then you get to verse 4, and some special visitors show up on the scene with the disciples. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now remember, we're trying to think carefully. We're trying to analyze this preview, sort of like we do with the movie trailer, to see what exactly is being taught to us about Jesus and about who he is. So this is obviously significant. I mean, Moses and Elijah are important figures. They're two of the most important figures in the Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament, you will come in contact with them in significant ways. They play important roles. They're revered Old Testament figures. But beyond just being important in the Old Testament and showing that Jesus was important, these two appearing to talk with Jesus on a high mountain, that tells us a couple of truths about who Jesus is. First of all, they they appear talking with him on a high mountain. I told you we'd get back to this. Well, here we go. 
We saw in verse 2, Jesus led the disciples up on a high mountain, which is where this takes place. In Scripture, mountains tend to be the place where God reveals himself to man. And if you think about both Moses and Elijah, both of them had significant encounters with God on the top of a mountain. And in fact, it was the same mountain. They both encountered God and they both spoke with God on top of Mount Sinai. Moses received the law there, and Elijah, after he was driven away by Ahab and Jezebel, went and met God and had an encounter with God on Mount Sinai. So both of them meet God and had revelation from God on top of a mountain. God spoke with them. What's interesting here is that they both show up, and who are they talking to here? They're talking to Jesus. Not God the Father. Now they're talking to God the Son. And what does that tell us about Jesus? Obviously, they see him as more than just a man. He's God. But the second thing that's interesting here about both of them showing up, Moses and Elijah in particular, is there's only one Old Testament passage where Moses and Elijah are brought together, where the Old Testament scriptures mention both of them in the same passage. And this passage is found at the very end of your Old Testament. It's actually only a few pages to your left. Go past Matthew and you get to Malachi chapter 4. The very last words in your English Old Testament describe a situation with both Moses and Elijah being mentioned. And you can turn over to Malachi 4 if you want. Now, before I read it, I want to give you a little bit of context for Malachi 4 to help you understand why both of them showing up and talking with Jesus is important at the transfiguration. In Malachi, this book, this prophecy is written after Israel returns from exile, okay? After Judah returns from exile, they come back from being exiled, they come back into the land And Malachi gives his prophecy during that time. They're back in the land, but things are still not going well. They've been punished for their sins. They've been sent out of the promised land. Now they come back into the promised land, and there's still obvious evidence of sin in their hearts. And things are not going well. They're not following the covenant as they should. So God, through Malachi, this prophet, speaks to them and tells the people, judgment will come on you if you do not get in line with my law. If you do not obey me and listen to my voice, judgment's going to come. Now, he's looking forward to a future time when judgment will come in, in the Old Testament. That judgment, that time is called the day of the Lord. Okay, so it's important that you know that the day of the Lord is a future. We use the word eschatological. It's coming in the end times and it's judgment, but it's not only judgment. It's the time when God will usher in his kingdom. He will make everything right. He will judge sinners and he will make it right for his people. He'll bring everything to completion. That's the end day of the Lord. And that's what Malachi is talking about. So with that in mind, let's start reading chapter 4 of Malachi and verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, 
so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name. So this is the other side. You see the judgment. Now you see the ushering in of the kingdom, things being made right. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping, leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So after those promises of both judgment and restoration, now we get to the part with Moses and Elijah. And what he says to them is essentially, you need to look back to the law of Moses and obey it. And then you need to anticipate that Elijah will come in the future before the day of the Lord. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, the last words in your Old Testament have Moses and Elijah spoken about to Israel previewing this coming day of the Lord. So the fact that both of these figures show up together at the same time and are talking with Jesus indicates that the day of the Lord is coming to Israel. The end messianic age is breaking in on Israel and they need to be ready for this. God is preparing to judge and he's preparing to make things right and to restore And both of these showing up together show that through Jesus, this new messianic age, the end times has arrived on the people. Let's move to our third revelation. So he's the one that brings the day of the Lord. And then in verses five through seven, he is the divine conquering son back in Mark chapter nine, Mark nine. So The story of the transfiguration is found in Matthew and Luke, as well as in the gospel of Mark. And in your Bible study, this is one of the things that we've hopefully taught you in Sunday school as we've studied the Gospels. But when you study the Gospels, it's important to read the different accounts individually, especially the stories that are told in all of the Gospels or in three of the Gospels. And then you compare those accounts. You don't flatten them all out and provide information for this one that this one leaves out, but you think, why did this one leave this information out? Or why is the emphasis here in this gospel? And this story of the transfiguration is a really great example of why we need to read this as it is in the gospel of Mark. The emphasis in this story of the transfiguration is actually on the disciples in a lot of ways. I mean, the first few verses have really told us this story from the disciples' disciples' point of view. I mean, it's talking about he appeared to them. They went with him, right? It's a, it's a lot about the disciples' experience of this story. Now, why, why would that be the case in the Gospel of Mark? Well, that's the case because this is meant to encourage and to challenge the disciples that who Jesus is, who he is being revealed to be, makes a difference in your following after him. If he is who you're seeing him to be in this transfiguration, then this matters for your life as a disciple. And obviously that principle, that this matters for your life as a disciple, that principle sits on us as well as followers of Christ. What we see here makes a difference in our discipleship. We are shaped by who Jesus is. And so up through verse 4, the disciples are, are watching these events unfold. They're seeing these things happen, 
And then in verse five, they start to respond. And it's a little bit awkward. Um, When we watch certain TV shows, even in just life situations, Bethany hates awkward situations. I love them. I think they're fantastic. I love the awkward tension at times, right? Well, you get some awkward tension here if you're reading this correctly, okay? Look at what Peter does in response. You have this scene unfolding. Moses and Elijah are there. You're on this mountaintop. Something obviously significant is happening. And look how Peter responds in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why does Peter suggest these three tabernacles or tents here? What's he trying to accomplish here? People have sort of read this and tried to explain, oh, he was referring back to this feast in the Old Testament and he's trying to do this and all of that. Actually, verse 6 tells us why he said this. Look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say. <laughs> That's why he said it, because he was, it was overwhelming. He was confused, and it's a little bit awkward. He really didn't know what to say, but he's Peter, and so he wanted to say something. And look at the end of verse 6. For they were terrified. Yeah, I guess they were. And he probably should have just been quiet, but he very awkwardly starts to talk and makes this suggestion and sticks his foot in his mouth in many ways. He knew this was important, but he didn't know why. And it's funny because it's almost as if this doesn't happen. No one, Mark doesn't say that anyone looks at Peter or anyone responds to him. Instead, the story carries right on. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Mark picks right back up with what's happening. Now, this is important. If you remember, when Moses went on to Mount Sinai... What happened? A cloud enveloped Mount Sinai. What did that show? That showed that the presence of God was with him on the mountain. Look at Exodus 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This cloud here lets us know that the glory of the Lord was present with them on the mountain. But that's not the most important piece of what happens here. Notice what God the Father says out of this cloud in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard those words in the Gospel of Mark, is it? We heard those words all the way back at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1 and verse 11. The same words were spoken there by the Father. But at that point, they were only spoken to Jesus. There's no evidence that anyone else heard the Father affirming the Son. But here, the Father speaks these words to the disciples so that they hear this affirmation of him as God's Son. Now, what's the significance of God the Father calling Jesus his beloved son? We've talked about the heavenly origin of Jesus. He's clothed in white. He's transfigured into his heavenly form before them, his preexistent form. And so, obviously, this is important for that. It's an affirmation that he is God, very God. He is the son of God. But calling him the son is 
also a reference back to an Old Testament passage. I want you to flip over to Psalm chapter 2. Actually, let me see if I have it up here. I do have it up here. Psalm chapter 2, you can just stay there and we'll look at it on the screen. But in Psalm chapter 2, if you were to go back and read the beginning of this psalm, this is the one, why do the nations rage? Why do the heathen plot against the Lord? And so there's this sinful rebellion against God and against his authority. And the psalmist says, how does God respond to this rebellion against him from the nations, from the people? How does he do it? (laughs) I love this. Verse five, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then here's what he does in response to that. He laughs, but then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, here's my response. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God installs his divine king as a response to man's rebellion. Well, who is this divine king? According to Psalm 2, it's not up there. Psalm 2 and verse 7, he calls him his son. It's the son of God who is the divine king. His plan is to bring about his kingdom, to install his king, and the identity of that king is his son. And so it's significant here that God the Father affirms to the disciples that Jesus is the son, the son promised in Psalm 2, the divine son. So what he's basically saying is, Peter, your description of Jesus in chapter 8, verse 29, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, that is right. He is the king and he is my son. But that's not all God says about him. He's the final word of God. This is our fourth revelation here. He's the final word of God. Look at what else God says in verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. And look what he says. Listen to him. How must the disciples respond to Jesus since he is the divine divine son? He is the anointed one. He is the son of God. They must listen to him. Now, we've just seen Moses on the mountain with Jesus. If you were a Jew, you listened to Moses. Moses wrote, I hate to say the most important books of the Old Testament, but they are the the five books of the Pentateuch are the foundation of the Old Testament. You read the rest of the Old Testament, the story of Israel in light of those five books. They are important. Some religious leaders in this time only believed in the five books in the sense that they were the ones that had the true divine authority on them. And so they were very, very significant. So if you're a Jew, you listen to Moses because he's a spokesman for God. He was probably the greatest spokesman for God in the entire Old Testament. But here, Moses is on the mountain with Jesus and God the Father tells the disciples, you need to listen to Jesus. Why? Did you know in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' last book, the greatest spokesman of God in the Old Testament, there's this promise that God would raise up another prophet who's like Moses, but better. And do you know what he says about that prophet? Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I 
command him. No one in the Old Testament fulfilled this, but we get here and God the Father is affirming Jesus is the divine son. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he's the prophet like Moses who speaks and represents me and brings a word from me. He is the final word of God, the long expected spokesman who reveals God to his people. A couple other passages in the New Testament. John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Of course, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. He reveals him to us. You and I know God the Father because of the incarnation and the work in the ministry of Jesus the Son. Do you want to know God? You must go through Jesus Christ. You must understand his work and his person to know God. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, prophets like Moses. But in these last days, I love that eschatological word there, last days, the time, the messianic age. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. To know God, you have to go through Christ. You have to know Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But it's important here beyond just Jesus or beyond the father saying, listen to him because he's this prophet. He's the final word of God. It's important in the context of when this happens that God tells them to listen to Jesus. What has Jesus just spoken to the disciples? He's just told them in chapter eight that he's going to suffer and die. And they have trouble believing that. And then he's told them that if you're going to be his disciple, you have to suffer and die and follow him as well. And on the heels of those words, God the Father says to the disciples, listen to him. What he is telling you is important, vitally significant to your life as a disciple. You have to listen. You have to pay careful attention because without the teaching that he just gave you, without the reality of his suffering and his death, you cannot grasp who he is nor can you participate in his kingdom. Look at verse 8. This is my son, verse 7, listen to him, and verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but with them, with them but Jesus only. God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him, and they look around, the clouds are gone, and it's only Jesus left. In his human form again, And obviously, they need to listen to him. They need to follow him. That's the implication here. And they need to follow him in the path he will tread, which brings us to our last revelation of Jesus. He's the promised suffering servant. Verses 9 through 13. So if you kind of pause here for a second, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This has been quite a week for them, hasn't it? I mean, this is six days after Jesus was was teaching them about his suffering, his death, and what this meant for them as disciples. And so they've heard a lot in this week. Now, three of them have been up on this mountain with Jesus, and they've seen Moses and Elijah in glory, standing and talking with Jesus. They've heard this voice. They've gotten this preview of the coming kingdom. All of this has happened. 
And so after this preview of this glory, there may have been a temptation for them. I mean, they're, they're swinging back and forth, right? He's the Messiah. Oh, no, suffering and death. Wow, look at this glory. And so after this, there may have been this temptation that, my goodness, maybe that whole suffering and death thing isn't really going to be the case. We just saw this amazing revelation of his glory and heard a word from God the Father that this is the Son. Listen to him. So maybe there was this triumphalism that the kingdom would break in right now. Rome's shackles would be thrown off. He would be the conquering Messiah. And that's why Jesus tells them what he tells them in verse 9. Look there. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They're still not getting it. Look at verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves. So they get that part of it. But they're questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, during this time period, resurrection teaching would not have been abnormal. Teaching about a future resurrection, understanding that human beings would rise from the dead in the last days, that would have been a fairly typical teaching. Of course, some, like the Sadducees, denied that, but others taught it and believed it very clearly from the Old Testament. So good Jews would have understood at least something about the resurrection. So I I don't think their struggle here is with the concept of the resurrection necessarily. I think their struggle here still is with Jesus dying. Because, of course, to rise from the dead, you have to die. And so they don't get it. They're, They're not understanding why he's talking about rising from the dead because they don't. They're struggling with the concept of his death. So they ask him a question. They're kind of pressing this issue, sort of a leading question in verse 11. Look there. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So what exactly are they asking here? Well, they've just seen Moses. They've just seen Elijah. We talked earlier about how Moses and Elijah being together would have tipped them off to this end of times, this ushering in of the kingdom, these eschatological hopes, fulfillment of promises. So they're thinking along those lines. The end times are coming. The kingdom's going to come. So they're thinking along those lines here. When Elijah shows up, the kingdoms are going to arrive. So they ask this question because they're trying to fit Jesus's death into that timeline. If, If Elijah's already shown up, then why would you have to die? So they're asking, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? How does this fit with what you're telling us about your death? Why would you need to die if Elijah's already showed up and the end times are upon us? Jesus answers in verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. They're right to believe that Elijah comes first. We'll talk about who this is in a second. That's the expectation of Malachi chapter 4, right? We saw that. But Jesus challenges their thinking. Let's keep reading in verse 12. I'll try to make this make sense to you. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now notice, in verse 12 and verse 13, two times he talks about it being written that these things would happen, okay? So the Messiah will suffer, and this one that precedes the Messiah 
will suffer. And both of those things have been promised. That's one of the reasons that they have to take place is because they've been promised. They're necessary according to the Old Testament scriptures. So the question here as you read this is, what Old Testament scriptures is he talking about here? Why does he think these things were promised? Well, let's talk about Elijah first, who would precede him. Who is this? Well, we don't have time to look at all the reasons why, but this is John the Baptist here. Matthew refers to John the Baptist as Elijah. He precedes the Messiah. So he has come first. And that's why in verse 13, Jesus says that Elijah has come. He's come to proceed and call people to repentance. And we saw in Mark 6, the account of John the Baptist's death, right? So he suffered and died because of what he believed. And the same thing was true of Elijah in the Old Testament. He didn't die necessarily because of what he believed, but he certainly suffered at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel. He was persecuted. He was driven into the wilderness. And Elijah in the Old Testament sets this pattern and this type for John the Baptist in the future. And that's why John the Baptist is compared to him. But what about the suffering of Messiah? Verse 12, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What passage is he talking about there? Well, the most obvious passage, and the one I think he's referring to, is Isaiah 53. I think he's talking about this passage that does teach that the servant of the Lord will come and he will suffer and be treated with contempt. I think I have this on the screen. I do. Let me read verses 3 to 6. These are familiar to you, but listen to these words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think Jesus is identifying himself with this servant, this suffering servant here in verses 12 and 13. He's saying, if this is true of the one that precedes Messiah of John the Baptist, and we certainly saw that it was, if this was true of Elijah in the Old Testament, if this is true of many of the prophets, this will be true of Messiah And here's how and why he does it. He does it for us. He's the suffering servant. And in order to be exalted in his glory, he must suffer and he must die on our behalf. So this is a lot to take in, isn't it? (laughs) These five revelations. We tried to learn from all these details as much as we can in this passage about the transfiguration. We've tried to sort of look behind the curtain while we have a glimpse at it and see what this teaches us about Jesus Christ. And I think these are like five facets of a diamond that we want to just keep spinning and looking at and see the light reflect off of those facets. But let's try to bring this theology of Jesus, this Christology that we've seen here into our seats this morning and into our lives this week. What does this mean for us? I mean, really what we've done this morning is we've talked about Jesus a lot. There hasn't been a lot of you do this this week. I do this. There's been a lot of look at Christ. 
Look at who he is. Look at what the Old Testament promises him to be and who he is in his heavenly origin and his divine sonship. But what does that mean for our sanctification this week? One of the best verses on this, and you know it, 2 Corinthians 3. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding his glory as we've tried to do this morning, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're changed as we do what we've done this morning, as we see the glory of Christ. I want to give you a quote that describes this process of change. It's from a very old book, and I'll try to explain it to you as we go. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. So you and I are what we love. What are your affections? What are your desires drawn toward? That will determine who you are. Your treasure is where your heart is. What you love will shape your character. If you love money, your character over time will be shaped by that to be a certain kind of person. If you love prestige from men and constantly need attention, that will shape your character and it will determine who you are. He explains, he who loveth mean and sordid things. We don't use the word sordid enough. He who loveth mean and sordid things doth thereby become base and vile. You see that? Love determines the shape of your character. You will become base and vile if you love base things. But a noble and well-placed affection doth advance and improve the spirit Unto a conformity with the perfections which it loves. If you love holy things, if you love good things, then your character will be shaped by that love and you will become like what you love. We want to love Christ. I think most of us, all of us in here would say, I want to love Christ more than I love earthly things, but I don't know how to get there. The only way to love Christ is to do what we've done this morning, to dwell on the beauty of his person and work, to hold up the diamond of the glory of his work and to to fix our attention on that. And that will cause our love to grow. And then our character will follow behind our love like a dog on a leash in many ways. And growing in love through beholding the beauty of Christ, that is what steadies us for the difficulties of life. How do we handle trials? How do we handle difficulties? Life is hard. I've been reminded of that afresh this week. Man, people go through really tough stuff all the time. There are multiple people within our congregation that are suffering right now, that have difficult things coming in front of them this week. This past week, people sin against you. You sin against people. I do as well. Biblically speaking, maybe the greatest way to learn to respond appropriately to trials is to behold the glory of Christ, the Christ who suffered for us. Watch him suffer well. Learn the beauty of his suffering on our behalf. And that will cause us to love him and be drawn to him, and that will shape our character in a way that responds appropriately to suffering.
like Christ responded. There's no simple words. There are no simple words to make suffering go away or to make it become easier. But it takes a soul soaked in the beauty of Christ and the, the glory of his suffering as Messiah to respond appropriately. And so that's why we do what we've done this morning. That's why we talk about Jesus. That's why we're studying this gospel. It's a slow process and it takes time. But I pray that maybe some facet of this vision of Christ this morning will cause you to think on him this week and cause your love and your affection to be raised to another level for him. And then that love and affection being raised will shape you to prepare you and steady you for the difficulties of life that you will face. That's why we're doing what we do. And I hope that's true of all of us this week. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We would be lost without passages like this. The transfiguration is such a a multifaceted view of Jesus and who he is. I pray that you would help us to just to sit in this water and soak in it this week. Direct our thoughts toward the beauty of Christ, even in his suffering for us. And I pray that that well-placed affection would shape us and change us. But we need your spirit to do this work. We are not capable on our own. It requires the initiation of your grace, the illumination of your spirit in our hearts. So please do that now. Thank you for who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.